0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you so much for all of your support for the podcast. It's something that I pay for out of pocket, and so I appreciate all of the support that I get. I'm still not able to pay for it all on my own, and while I'm still doing that significantly, I really would appreciate it. For people to really consider supporting the podcast and passing the message on to friends and family who they say do benefit from hearing the information and the messages and hearing people tell their story. So please consider going to patreon.com/slash indoctrination. It's very important in order to keep the show on the air. And I want to do a special shout out for the people who give $10 or more per month to help keep the show going for you and for others to alex to Anne and richard to jay and brianna and camu and christina james katrina ken lillian linda ludwig maureen paula and paul cynthia and peter scott bert and sylvia thank you thank you thank you so very much Katrina Meredith is pursuing her PhD in community psychology, and she's studying terrorism and extremism. She grew up in a new age cult from age 10 to 20, and she currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her two children and her husband, who she met shortly after leaving the cult. In the 17 years since her exit, she has steadily worked to understand and resolve the trauma she experienced. In a very abusive group setting. She does wonderful work and I always enjoy talking to her. She is a friend and a colleague and someone who I will hopefully be able to get to see at a conference in the near future. But in the meantime, I am so happy you're going to be able to learn from her during this third segment of a three-part conversation with her where she goes through initially talking about having been raised in a cultic group, then in my second conversation with her, talks about leaving it, and then during this third conversation, she talks about moving on with her life and becoming a parent and the trauma and traumas that she still needed to work through and how she did it. So here's Katrina now. It's so moving to hear your story and you've clearly learned so many of the words to describe it. Um, really quite powerful words, ones that I, I am writing down. So I remember, and, uh, so much of what you're talking about when you were saying that this joy was welling up inside of you, it's very natural reaction, spontaneous reaction, and that you stopped it. There is so much that happens where, you learn that it is dangerous it's dangerous to feel sure. and it's dangerous to have uh happiness um and sort of be raised up in that way because then you're going to get slammed down. There's this inevitability.
1: And that's anybody who's ever lived with a narcissist can probably relate to that. Exactly. This is not something just cults do, right?
0: Right. And you can see it. You can actually, you can see sometimes when people have the smile and then they stop it. And I'm sure you can pick up on that too now because you've experienced it yourself. And I guess my question is, is that when when you learn subconsciously that one, One emotion was going to create something dangerous or vulnerability that became an equation. I think in your mind, ah, this, even just a physiological equation, if I feel this, then this bad thing might happen to me, or I might be vulnerable to something bad happening, uh, or it's going to hurt more when this thing is taken away because I'm attached. What new connections did you need to make? What new phrases did you need to have in your mind that, would make you feel okay about sustaining the happiness or feeling joy or just being in the moment.
1: I mean, big part of PTSD is that um I call it time travel because something triggers and you're back in that moment, right? I'm 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 not suddenly in my 30s anymore. I'm suddenly 10 again. I'm back being vulnerable. I'm back in 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 complete dependency. I'm back in that feeling at that time and I mean it was two or three years ago we were on vacation I turned to my husband I'm like I think I don't have PTSD anymore and I thought that was just going to be for life honestly I did not think and I just went I haven't had a nightmare in a few months and I haven't had an anxiety attack and I feel relaxed (laughs) He goes, that is awesome and he actually could really appreciate it I mean he actually went wow because he'd been with me for the previous what 12 13 years of ptsd riddled life which is absolute yeah it's hard um so i think uh, there's something in your brain that needs to happen where all that that really hot memory the the hot feelings right the it's in the amygdala, the the um things that you couldn't process at the time it got stored in short term mm-hmm. That's how it was explained to me and there might be Way, more sophisticated ways to explain this but easy way that i understood it is that in that time i couldn't process this i was under attack something terrible was happening and i was a child and and, and i couldn't process this and so the feelings and it was kind of i froze right fight flight, freeze i just i, I froze i i couldn't fight i couldn't run the only option was play dead and freeze And because it was so much and so overwhelming, there was no time to process all those feelings and and thoughts. And uh, it was just stored hot in short-term storage and not with a when, not with a where, not with a how, not the context that goes with long-term storage with the hippocampus, whatever. So um, I think that for me, it was talk therapy. It was definitely a trained trauma therapist that was able to go touch this. And she said it's phobia work. You're so deadly afraid. You're absolutely afraid, deathly afraid of um, of what happened, of the trauma and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. She was there with me. We were to go back again and again on the peripheral and then closer and closer to the trauma and what what that did to me and what made me so afraid. And through that, by saying, it, felt, it started to feel old. It started to feel when I was 12, this happened. When I was 10, this happened. We were here. I was in this room. And through that process, I was able to store it cold, long-term storage. And I think that was, that was definitely a big part of it. Of, of, I was basically ready to fight this. I was like, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. I, I, I can sense that I'm constantly afraid. And it's messing with my life. And it's not allowing me to engage and feel and be happy. So I think it's that first step of I'm not a child anymore. I'm not under attack anymore. I'm not helpless anymore. Mm-hmm. And once that starts sinking in, I am not helpless anymore. I have control. My feelings aren't going to come up, come up and suddenly consume me and then everything around me and the whole world's gonna burn. That is not going to happen. They're gonna come up and they're gonna be horrible, but then they're gonna go down again. And I think the more often I went into the dark places and looked at it, the, the it lost its power. And then slowly I started to realize Of course I knew I wasn't a child anymore, but it's something triggered and boom, that feeling was back. right? So I think that that took some time and just being, I'm in control of my life now. I mean, as much as any of us are, but I am not in that place anymore. I'm not helpless anymore. There are things I can do. And then just Mm. the things of, I am worthy of love. I had to, I didn't know what love really meant. I thought love was uh, sacrificing. I thought that you got friends by doing something for them. Right. And I thought that um, in a relationship that I constantly had to sacrifice parts of myself so the other person would stay, it took me a while to be that it's something you freely give. <laughs> and, um, mm. and any narcissist or cult will have their members believe uh, the the partner that they are unworthy of love. And that's how they get them, right that yeah. without me, you're nothing is what they tell them and um so I had to go, wait, no, I am someone. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. it doesn't matter. I don't need that validation i'm um I'm someone, and I think that whole process, and again, when you grow up with a narcissistic parent or alcoholic or uh it could even be bipolar or something if you if you grow up with someone who's not there and it's all about them you 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 become totally outward focused and i think that happens to all children in cults that i've met at least they're constantly focused on the outside what's the situation like what mood are the leaders or my parents in what am i supposed to do and they just forget what's happening inside i mean it's it's wanted it's it's, the system works that way and for me to focus uh, to to go in inside again it was a process to not occupy and distract myself but to go what's actually happening in here What, what what am i feeling what are my needs? I mean, that took forever. I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't tell you what do I need right now to feel better. I don't know. I mean, now I know. Now I can go. Oh, you know, one of these ten things might work. I didn't know when I was overstimulated for the longest time, for the first yeah, probably twelve years or so after getting out. I would get overstimulated and, and die. Grew up in the jungle. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but it was so um, anxiety-wise too. Like too many people, too many noises. Too much happening, too many in-laws visiting, whatever it was, right there was so many, too much, whatever it was, and i didn't realize that I was getting overwhelmed. And I would just keep pushing through it, and now I know, okay, if I step outside for ten minutes, I will feel better. I didn't know that because I'd never learned that because I never practiced that, and one of my clients I had i mean in his late forties and very successful this business and and we hit on communicating needs, and he goes, Oh, I don't know how to tell my wife what I need. And it's just that whole sense of because you weren't allowed to have any. And then my husband would go guessing what I might need, and then he would get it wrong, and then I'd be pissed. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not helping. <laughs> He's like, Oh, I thought he wanted to go out. I'm like, I don't know. But no, actually, that was wrong. <laughs> like, oh. So he is <laughs> so happy that I can now say, I feel like staying in tonight. And he goes, awesome actually I did too I just wanted to I thought you might want to go out I'm like nope or we both get ready to do something and I go Ugh, I don't want to talk to anybody now do you mind if we just tell them we're sick he's like yeah it's like we can just tell them that we don't feel like it I'm like oh yeah yeah it's probably better <laughs> <Still does. laughs> but I I didn't I didn't I wasn't allowed to have needs in the cult and so yeah. it was really foreign territory for me to articulate to first know what I wanted or needed. And then say it. I mean, I was so afraid the first few times I set boundaries and said, I don't like this. Or the first few times I said, I need this. Um, and then it just takes practice. It, its always going to be setbacks. It's not. Right. It's life, right? It's like learning anything. Good thing is we're flexible as human beings. There's a lot that we can learn even later in life. We didn't learn it as a teenager. We can learn it now.
0: I mean, that that expression that you can't, teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, you can. And the idea also of going outside for 10 minutes, I think people don't realize how important it is to learn self-regulation and emotional regulation Yes, and to give yourself the permission to address, sort of to check in with you Yeah, and to do what you're telling yourself you need. There's also something very empowering about answering yourself, about really listening that, you know, you can then rely on yourself. And I think also, the idea of having needs, you know, in small ways when people are raised, like even with the uh, 12 siblings, let's say, what, what, you know, to to that they're suddenly, they're the 11th or 12th of their children and they are suddenly with someone who says, you know, I'm going to go get you something to drink. How many ice cubes do you like in your water? What? You know, I'm <laughs> <That's laughs> not right. used to even... There being enough water for me to get, so uh, that's the level of detail that that has never been provided for me, and it and it feels like a little much to be asked. That at the same time, the idea that as you were going to to the beginning of the story about how the cult leader used people's expression of their needs and emotions against right,
1: absolutely, it
0: was it was um, weaponized.
1: Your needs were weaponized, and so. You make yourself vulnerable by expressing them to anyone.
0: Yeah. So it's very dangerous. Having needs
1: made you vulnerable. So for the longest time, I tried to not want anything as a kid, as a teenager. I I, I was like, I don't want anything. I have no personal desires, no personal wishes. Um, And I tried to keep them up later for a while. Uh, Yeah. I equated having needs or even preferences or anything as as that's where they attack you. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. And and so then I, I also love your phrase from before I am someone. And I want to be able to at some point expand on that. But um but I I want just in kind of finishing up, I I want to be able to have you talk about yourself as a parent too, and the lessons that you've taught your kids and the freedoms that you've provided for them and the empowerment, um, at the same time, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm not caring about you and what you need and just going back to you in relationship to tending to somebody else.
1: No, but I, I, we talked about that in the, before that, um, that was something that's very much in my mind is, uh, being a parent and, and this role right now um, of being a parent and I think I learned a lot of <laughs> unfortunately I learned boundaries along my two-year-old <laughs> which is a bit tricky when neither of you knows boundaries I was uh, not a great parent at first because I, I didn't take time for myself I didn't set boundaries I didn't say I need an evening off because again self-regulation I didn't know I was a this close to just having a total utter breakdown, right? I I couldn't, yeah, figure out where I was at. Um, So instead of saying, mommy needs two minutes, don't come into this room. I was basically always available. That's, That's what I had been taught to use always available, always on. Mm -hmm. And that is the quickest way for a burnout. And it's terrible. And when you're a parent, you're already at your max all the time anyway. And and your kids need so much from you and you want to give them so much. Um, And I had to learn that it doesn't mean that I don't love someone when I set boundaries. It actually means that I respect myself and I respect them. And I think that's when it started changing again with some therapy and some help is I started setting boundaries. I started saying, I want to be treated this way. And please don't yell at me. And then I'm, I'm not gonna yell at you. And please respect me when I need 10 minutes by myself. And I will respect you when you need that. And now that my daughter is 10 and my son is seven, we, we still do that. I mean, I, I knock on the door before I enter. Um, they do that same thing to my door. If I say, I just need some time now, um, they know <laughs> they know that better give me that time. <laughs> I'm getting used to. And obviously if it's an emergency, it's an emergency. But uh they, they 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 know that I'm not perfect and that I uh am human like them and I apologize too when I when I do snap or when I do uh have a moment I go, Well, I'm sorry, that was actually not about you. I was a bit sad about something else, and I should not have taken that out on you. But then also mm-hmm. when my daughter does it to my son sometimes, I go, wait, I think you were upset about something else. Was that fair just now? just go mm. turn around and yell at him and she goes no so i think we're all learning <laughs> together and i i still am not the warmest fuzziest person at all times i mean i think there are some people who just naturally flourish in parenthood and it's just awesome for them and now that they're able to talk it's definitely a lot easier and they're not as dependent i also hate having people on dependent being dependent on me that's why i did not become a therapist because i think it's so scary and maybe yeah, so I'm I'm doing community psychology because you deal with many people at once. I prefer that. Um I just uh, it, it was very scary for me that I'm responsible for my kids, that I'm I'm the adult and I'm I'm supposed to be the example when I felt like such a mess so many times. And I think I learned to say, I don't know everything and I don't know what's right. And, you know, when I suggested we do something, didn't turn out great. I'm like, oh, maybe that wasn't a great idea. And that's something that the cult leader never, he never showed weakness. And I think at first, I, you parent like you were parented and, and the cult leader became my parent. So I think I was very authoritarian at first. I was very hard on myself and them. I mean, this all or nothing thinking, I just kept being Extremely high expectations of young children. I mean, in retrospect, they go, wow, that was so unrealistic. What was I thinking? I mean, of course, mm-hmm. they're not going to put both socks on before, you know, they're ready. I mean, never mind we need to leave now, but I mean, there so many little things. And um, I think once I started to, to let go of the authoritarian view towards myself, I was able to be more relaxed. So yeah, it goes back to the black and white thinking, the all or nothing, right? The high pressure that so many people that leave and put on themselves so we've left this huge pressure system this high demand system and we still have these unrealistically high standards on ourselves that actually all they do is make us completely feel like a failure 24 7 that's all they do that's the only purpose of these high standards is to make everybody feel like shit and they're not good enough Mm -hmm. and i kept doing that to myself and then i was doing it to my children and That's when I realized, wow, my daughter started to, to be uncertain of everything she did. I went, Oh my gosh, I need to change this immediately. I'm
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. I and, and and I did and I was able to turn it around and they're both doing really good and I think they've both developed the trust in themselves now. And I've been very clear yeah. about look, it's totally okay if you're upset with me sometimes. Or the feeling. and I've taught them strategies that I've learned in the last three years of how to deal with when I'm upset or I need space or this or that and how to communicate it. And I just recently learned it. So, yeah. Now I'm really, really happy they're here. and I'm really able to connect and enjoy. And, I mean, yeah, it's an uncertain world and feels like we just averted World War Three barely. And it's going to, I mean, climate change and all these things, right? I mean, there's so much stuff that's uncertain, but... I think I'm okay. I'm more okay with uncertainty now than I ever was. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't know what's going to happen next day. It's okay.
0: Mhm. I I think that the idea of um having all these high expectations and the the need for perfection in groups like this it does uh come through when we are then parenting a child or when we yeah. are with someone and, and then we get to see also that there was an expectation or there was an expectation placed on you that was beyond your capacity in every way. And then if you couldn't do those things because there wasn't an awareness, I think, of, um, of development uh, of what should be expected.
1: Age-appropriate stuff, forget it. Because old souls, I mean, thousands of years old,
0: Okay. Yeah. So you should be able to do everything. You should be able to right. emotionally handle everything. And right. Exactly. Right. Then if you can't do this thing, that is the expectation placed on you, that's actually not humanly possible and shouldn't be expected at that age, exactly. Just in terms of brain chemistry hasn't yet even developed and the connections haven't been made that that's punishable or that you need to feel shame or crit- be critical of yourself yes. that you can't do that. And to let your children be able to be their ages and to give them a sense of what is a quote unquote kind of normal expectation based on now the studies that you've done on on child development and brain development and all of it is is giving them a gift i think also changing things midstream when you feel like you haven't done something the way you really wanted You know, there are a lot of people I know who have come out of very restrictive or abusive environments where they find themselves being that way Mm -hmm. or they find themselves not having any rules at all because they're so afraid that as soon as they do or as soon as they raise their voice, they're abusive.
1: I've seen that a lot, too, and it's really sad. But then um, and kids, I mean, good boundaries are awesome. I know I like to know where I'm at with people I like to know I mean it makes me actually feel safer when people tell me actually you know what it's not a good afternoon do you mind if you postpone and I'm so happy because then I feel like I can do that when I don't feel like it so mm-hmm. when someone sets boundaries and says hey by the way I didn't think it was cool that you called after 10 p.m or by the way if I don't respond in a day or two just know that I have stuff going on I will get to you and I'm like oh good I feel such a relief now. Or if their house is a mess, I feel much better about my house. So it's yeah. like, okay. Um, so I see, I've seen that too, where parents are just completely walked all over because they're so afraid of doing that. And I think I was really afraid of spontaneously turning into a psychopath because, again, the father figured the leader was one. And just to realize that we don't just, boom, turn into our parents or the people that raised us. That that we have a choice in this, and that we have the ability to change, and going back to what you said about these roles and the everybody's diagnosed the same way, or everybody's the same, and going no, we have the capacity to change. we can rewrite our story, we can change it, we can, um, we can go back and say, "Well, that didn't work, let me try a different route." Uh, and that's that's really good. and I think sometimes we're so stuck, we're so well, I started this way, so I'm going to stick with this. Rather than going, yeah, actually that was a bad decision. Let me let me go and try another route.
0: Right, and that's such great modeling for kids when they see their parents saying, you know, "Mm, yeah, no, okay, let's do this instead. I mean, it's like just driving in a certain direction and you realize that you're not going the right direction. You won't just keep going in that direction just because you said you were going to go to the west, and it turns out that it's the east. You would actually turn things around. Yeah. When when you mention also. That the leader never showed weakness. I, I'm assuming now also in, in retrospect, he was he was the one who showed weakness all the time. Because if he really were quite sort of that quietly confident person, he wouldn't have needed to be so abusive and controlling and right to develop at, at its core, you know. I think that that a lot of people in positions of leadership are kind of the weakest link or the most insecure but they overcompensate to such a degree especially a sociopathic degree that you don't see it you you don't know it
1: oh it didn't look like weakness it looked like control yeah he was constantly controlling everything around him because you're right I mean I, I I see true strength in people and and people who are just resting in themselves and people who are you don't feel the need to control everyone around you because you're good with yourself. You're good with your life. You don't. I don't care if my neighbors or somebody does something differently than me. It's fine mm-hmm. because, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not them, and uh, they're healthy boundaries again. <laughs> yeah, no, he was definitely, um, and you see that in interpersonal violence all the time. There's something that's threatening the abuser. And so they try to destroy that in in their victim. They try to Mm -hmm. control that um, because it threatens their sense of whatever um, gender stereotype or, yeah. I think that's something we see, uh, I would say, even in um, right-wing extremism and political extremist form and terrorism. I mean, anything that's based on some sort of ideology as well is that There is something that they find so threatening that they have to attack the other, and I'm always curious as to why does that unsettle you so much? Why does it unsettle you so much that people are different? What is it that that is such a threat to you that you now need to attack that?
0: Right. I mean, it's it's an unfortunate part of human nature for some people, and also can be capitalized upon and exaggerated. And I I do think that whole idea of people being a threat that you then you you respond to them with hatred or fear out of your own survival or perception that you need to do that for your survival. Yes. Just in finishing up, was there something else that you wanted to be able to say or have people hear or learn about?
1: I think it's it's a process. And what often hurts is to measure yourself on someone else. I think there's such jealousy that's created in these groups and even with um, abusive parents, right? Sibling rivalry, all these things where you're pitted against one another. And it's so natural to go, well, so-and-so seems to be doing fine or so-and-so is doing much better or so-and-so is dealing with this in a different way. And why can't I? And um, I think that's, it's, it's, A, it's not helpful, obviously, but also it's, uh, I mean, the, the big crime is assuming that we're all the same, right? In a cult, it's that assumption that we all have to act the same and feel the same. And it's the beauty is that we're all different also means we're all going to tackle things differently and deal with it differently and mm-hmm. and we only see people often at their best. we don't see them at their worst and um mm-hmm. very few people have seen me at my worst and it's uh it's real it's, it's it's very hard to recover it's a long journey it's there is no instant solution. it takes time and persistence and in that process to really go. Something I learned is that I to rest with your successes, to go, yay, well done. And that you need that. It's not self-indulgence. It's not narcissistic. It's that you need that to get the fuel to keep pushing forward. That you need to stop and go, I did this differently three months ago. I'm 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 handling this much better right now. Every little every little success you can find, every little interaction that's better, every little moment where you well, you did something that you accomplished, no matter how small, that you stop and actually stay with that and sit with that for a moment and go, yes, and allow yourself to feel happy about your progress. And that's the fuel that will keep you going.
0: Mm, that's very beautiful and powerful. <laughs> and you're right. And and necessary. Yeah. and it And it's based on something real. It's concrete. And you should be able to take that in. And so many people take that away from people make them doubt that it really was an accomplishment
1: and we're so trained this stupid self-optimization culture we're in right now the better Mm. me what's the next step what's the next self-improvement what's the next optimization and then cults too it's like you never i mean a it's never celebrated when you're good anyway because it's always from some other source it's not you don't do anything on your own but also it's just this whole sense of um you constantly have to try you're not supposed to rest because resting is what gives you strength and resting and enjoying your accomplishments is, yeah, what gives you the energy to keep going. So, yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. just we don't have to constantly improve ourselves. We can just be. There doesn't have to be a sense to everything. We don't have to be a better version of ourselves. We're just mm-hmm. slowly, slowly keep working in a direction that makes us feel like we're better for ourselves. That, like, we're not, less toxic for ourselves and those around us. And it's a maybe a more peaceful place to rest.
0: Thank you. Thank you for all that you shared. And also I'm I'm so happy to to find out more about your experiences. And yes, people can can check out Generation Cult and and hear more of the specifics of your story, even though I know you shared a lot today. Uh but I I had the word tenacity come into my head as you were talking that you stuck with it.
1: Oh, uh, I've heard stubbornness fuck a lot.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly right I mean it, it it is this really good healthy stubbornness actually the having a bad therapist having a medium therapist and going and and saying okay I I feel like there's more there should be another route or there should be a route for me to be able to enjoy my life and get past this trauma and you stuck with it
1: but I think at the essence of that is that sense of I deserve to have a happy life or be loved as much as anyone. I think it's that in some people that's so suppressed and so destroyed by a narcissist that you have to find that spark of, actually, I'm not a doormat. Actually, uh, it's okay and, and to have a content life. And actually, I should have a shot at this. And I'm allowing yourself to then go for the resources and allowing yourself to yeah, move forward, right? But it's hard. Yes. Always.
0: So I'm happy for you. I'm happy for your family also uh, that you are able to be present with them in a way that feels right and good for you and for them and to be able to take in the, the wonderfulness, the gift of it all. And so I'm so happy you have it. So I will hope to talk to you again soon and uh, hopefully we'll run into each other at some point at some something, some conference. But thank you again. And is there another place where people can find out more about what you're doing? Is there a website? Oh yeah,
1: uh, stronger-after.org. And as we speak, we're in the process of getting funding. Uh, we've tested the five units that people can take for free from the comfort of their own couch. hmm um that are based on psychoeducation it's just education about psychology uh it's a curriculum we developed and yeah it's just supposed to give you put things in words and give you back some of that feeling of power over your own life and being able to move forward and then hopefully find a therapist or just go out there and move on
0: right okay good thank you thank you katrina good to talk to you One more thing before you go. I'm so glad you got to hear Katrina today finishing up part of her story. It actually feels a little funny to say she was finishing up part of her story because she strikes me as someone who is going to have many parts to her story. From her past, as you heard a little bit about, and from her young adult life, and now through her studies and parenting and becoming strong in so many ways, and imparting her wisdom, luckily, for all of us and for all of our sakes. She talked about feeling very uncomfortable when she was pregnant and how she did not have joy around it. In fact, quite the opposite. She was disturbed by the idea that somehow her body was being taken over and it was no longer going to be hers or that somehow it was just there to serve a purpose and that she was unable to hold on to a sense of self when she had another person growing inside. There are people who do feel that at those times their bodies betray them, that there's something happening that they want to gain control over by deciding to end the pregnancy, because continuing it, well, it means absolutely losing control, losing any chance of having a life of your own. And... There are some people who feel resigned, like it was something that was their duty or obligation and it's what they were meant for, but there isn't the joy and the feeling of being gifted with something or seeing it as empowering as some women see it. Instead, they feel overwhelmed and kind of overtaken, relegated to having this role, this job, and wondering if at some point they'll be able to stop feeling like this pregnancy is like being on a runaway train. And once again, I'm reminded of a story. So here it is. I was speaking at a conference a few years ago and a woman approached me who seemed interestingly dressed like she was in between two worlds. I'm going to try to describe it to you visually so you know what I mean. Her hair was very long and her clothes were also long and kind of baggy and from another era. But she was wearing makeup and was wearing actually very cool sneakers, like someone who was transitioning either to an environment or from an environment where her look was dictated by others, but that she still showed little glimpses of independence, kind of strength through her makeup and through her shoes. And I was asked by her if, I could find an empty conference room for a few moments where she could tell me a little bit about her story. And we stood leaning against the windowsill in a conference room that was empty for the next half hour or so. She had been raised on an FLDS compound, which is part of the fundamentalist sect that is an offshoot of mainstream Mormonism, but engages in polygamy. She'd been married at a young age and had been a sister wife. And actually did not mind living in a house that felt like actually a community of like-minded people. But she also was someone who loved to study and read and learn. And once she started having children, there was just no time left for that. So while she felt that she was doing what she was supposed to be doing in God's eyes, she felt that her mind was atrophying. And she would sometimes sneak off to read books. Or magazine articles, or whatever she could get her hands on when she was doing errands for her household. And she remembered a particular magazine article that had the title, What Do You Stand For? And she thought it was a fascinating question because she hadn't been asked that question before. And she found that her mind started transforming it into different wording. And the question that then was on her mind as she brought her groceries back home that afternoon was not only, what do you stand for? But now, what are you for? And she stopped just before opening the front door while still holding these two bags of groceries and asked herself, what am I for? What is my body for? What is my mind for? And she realized she actually didn't have a clear sense of it. So for her, that needed to be answered, but she also knew that if she asked that question of someone within the community, she could kind of predict what the answer would be and it wouldn't get to the heart of it as she saw it. So this caused her to start planning to leave so she could answer those questions in a different way than they would have been answered in her community. She's very careful, and she was very careful, to say that she doesn't judge her community, but she felt in that moment that she didn't quite fit in because she had become someone who was serving a purpose that she felt was dictated by somebody else. And so it no longer felt like it was hers. So she said to me, I don't mean to put you on the spot, which is always an interesting way to start talking because I always want to say, well, too late because I have a feeling that what's about to come is going to put me on the spot. So she went on and said. But if a woman of 24 years like me with five children, yet no formal education or a way to support them, kind of asked you, what was she for? What would you say? Yeah. (laughs) Talk about not putting me on the spot. That is quite a question. And it stopped me in my tracks, actually, for many reasons. So I took a long time to think. And I then said to her, I actually haven't been asked the question in that way, but I also feel there's something inherently wrong with answering it, because then I would be another person defining what you are. And that has been the crux of the problem for you. And she said, so how do I know how to answer the question on my own? And if I do answer it, how will I know I'm giving myself the right answer? So I pulled out a chair and we both kind of laughed because we realized this was going to be a longer conversation than just one you have when you're sitting leaning against a windowsill. And I said to her, I could have given you an answer right away. That was sort of a knee jerk reaction to the question and kind of filtered through my feelings and based upon my biases and my life history and based upon how I was raised. But that would be exactly kind of what happened to you in the past. So I also explained that I didn't want to leave her feeling alone with the question. So the only thing I could think to say that felt fair was that people are complex and that life could have a lot of different kinds of joys and meanings. And when she was asking what she was for, I just said, imagine there are many answers to that question. And they are all equally valid, like you are maybe for yourself and you are for your children and you are alive to make a difference in your community if that's what you choose, if those are the things you choose. And you are here to enrich your mind and you're here to do many things you don't even yet know about. There are so many answers. So she said, "Ah, okay, I get the message that it's kind of open-ended. But she said that made her anxious. And she was raised being very sure about the feeling that her purpose was to serve and that anything done to serve herself or her mind or her heart or her own health were considered selfish. So that prompted a whole discussion about finding other words for the word selfish. And that maybe it was not being selfish, but rather it was about self-preservation or about self-care or just about being a steward to yourself so that then you can be strong and healthy enough to do what you feel you are for. It's a lot to think about and it's a lot to evaluate and it leaves a lot of unknowns still unknown. And that is very anxiety-producing for many people and why it feels so much better to be given the answer. But while I wanted to offer her that peace of mind by giving her an answer, I started evaluating in my own head while I was talking to her what I was for. And the best I could do in that moment was to think about what I was not for. And I was not for defining another person. And I was not for defining their role in this life or defining their path or defining their purpose, even if it leaves them with the discomfort of still not quite knowing. Sometimes the answers come as you live your life. And as you find, you have multiple reasons to be here. And maybe they're all equally true and valid because life is not a mathematical equation. Sometimes there's more than one right answer. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.